Hello and welcome. I am your host, Kirsty, and this is Leadership Odysseys. We're embarking on a mission to bridge the gap between aspiration and reality, offering a raw and unfiltered exploration of the behind the scenes challenges that shape true leadership. Join us as we share stories of resilience, turning points, and authentic human experiences that remind us greatness is a product of the entire odyssey, not just the destination. Today we have the privilege of hosting a truly remarkable leader, someone whose humility is as impressive as his achievements. His journey in leadership has not only reshaped the landscape of the fashion industry, but it has also left a permanent mark on the lives of countless individuals. Our guest today, Anthony Tesla, isn't just a CEO. He is a visionary on a mission, a mission to change the world one piece of clothing at a time. Under his leadership, the organisation he heads has become a shining example of what happens when compassion, innovation, and a deep commitment to sustainability come together. Anthony's humility is as impressive as the impact he has made. He doesn't seek the spotlight, but the spotlight has found him, illuminating a path that others now follow. The work delivered under his leadership at Thread Together has been nothing short of exceptional. It's not just about diverting clothing from landfills, it's about restoring dignity, providing hope, and changing lives. Today, we dive into the odyssey of a leader who believes in the power of collaboration, who sees potential where others might see waste, and who understands that true leadership isn't just about the numbers, it's about the people. Anthony Chesler, welcome to Leadership Odysseys. We're honoured to have you, and we can't wait to explore the journey that has led you to redefine leadership in the most meaningful and compassionate way. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and I'm thrilled to be able to share my story. Wonderful. Well, I'm very excited today to to really dive into who is Anthony more than anything else and hear all about the wonderful work that Thread Together has done, especially over the last decade or so. But I met you, what was it, probably about five years ago now, give or take. Through Afterpay, where we definitely had a, you know, a great sponsorship, but it was a lot more than a sponsorship. It was a pure partnership that was there as well. And I uh, have absolutely loved just learning all about your own story and watching the incredible work that you really are having across the industry. Thank you. I'm quite a private person, so I don't actually talk a lot about my past and where I've been and where I am. And I really don't focus on myself all that much, but I'm really happy to be here today and to share a little bit about myself. And, and hopefully those that are listening can take away something that might make a difference in their lives. Yeah, wonderful. Well, on that note, we're going to dive right into the first question. And our first question that I love to ask everyone is, where did your journey begin? Who is Anthony? So I, have, I was actually born in Johannesburg in South Africa, and I grew up throughout apartheid and emigrated to Australia in the mid-1980s. So I have, there was a profound impact living in South Africa and seeing the, I guess, the differences that between those that had and did not have. And that left certainly a a big mark on me personally. And so 
I'd say a lot of what I experienced when I was very, very young and not necessarily all that knowledgeable about what was happening in the country has certainly left an, an impact on me and has shaped the direction that I've actually pursued my, my career. So I arrived, arrived in Australia and started my life over with my family. I'm very grateful to my parents for bringing me and my siblings to Australia and giving us the opportunity that we've had. Uh, I think I never take that for granted. And I think we live in such a beautiful country in Australia now, and I think there's such opportunity to help many more people in, in what we do. What was that culture shift like for you as a child coming over here to Australia? So... First of all, I turned up to the first day of school. It's really interesting. I turned up on my first day of school and I actually didn't have the school uniform. So I knew from that first moment what it was like to stand out and not fit in as a young person. And so, so not only did I have an accent and no friends, but I also didn't look like everyone else in the classroom. So it was very easy to sort of stand out amongst the crowd. And that really left a mark on me around the importance of clothing. And I only really reflect on that in, in the latter years. but. On my first day at school, I didn't have any friends. I didn't, I was, I just stood out and I had to find myself again. And, you know, when you're at such a young age and you, you, there's a lot of vulnerability and you're trying to sort of, you know, hold that vulnerability to yourself and not necessarily, you know, expose yourself. And in the mid eighties, it wasn't something that you spoke a lot about. If you weren't feeling good about yourself or you experienced some mental health, you, you didn't necessarily share that with people. It wasn't something that's as widely spoken about as it is, as it is today. And so it was starting fresh and it was, it was hard. It was hard for my parents. It was hard for my siblings, harder for my sister. And I just tried to sort of just over, overperform and try and please all those around me. And so I tried to just work really hard and, and, and see, see myself through school and try and take a lot of the pressure off those that were around me that were experiencing different pressure. And when I finished school, I was very fortunate to, to, to receive a scholarship, which put me through university and gave me a job from, from when I first finished school. So I sort of went straight from studying and, and, and completing school into the workforce. And, and what did you study at uni? I studied commerce and accounting at okay. university, and I'm a qualified chartered accountant. Very different to what you're doing today, although probably very helpful in what you're doing today. Yeah. Provided great skills. I started my career at Ernst & Young, and I'm very thankful for that opportunity, the skills that I learned. I remember having dial-up internet at the day, in the day, and not everyone got a computer, so you had to, you know, I'm sounding really old, but that wasn't that long ago. And so... It really wasn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah. So the, the early part of my career was all about learning, and I always wanted to be solving problems. And I found the work that I started early in my career wasn't necessarily forward thinking was a lot of retrospective analysis. And really I left that role and started, started in a startup in the, in the early 2000s at that first sort of dot-com startup era. And that, that's, I started in a small business. I was the first employee in that business, that business. And I grew along, I grew along with that business over like the first, you know, next 20 years of my career. And, and what was started as a technology business became a traditional consulting business. And the thing that I loved about that business is working in small teams and just helping people, helping businesses perform better and helping them to solve for some of the problems that they had in their business. And that's the toolkit that I started to sort of build from a very early, from a very early age. Yeah. It's very interesting around the problem solving part of it. And especially being in that consultancy space to be able to really work with micro teams, I suppose, and, and really dive right into these problems that can change the landscape for yeah. a lot of businesses. 
Yeah, you're not you're not always welcome as a consultant in most organizations. In fact, sometimes you're sort of pushed into the corner and and treated with a little bit of disrespect. But you are there to help an organization perform better. And you are working in small teams and you have to show leadership from a very from the first day that you arrive, you've got to you've got to come with a toolkit and you've got to be able to prove that you're you've got to prove your worth really quickly. And we help lots of organizations in the early days, many of them experiencing profitability challenges or supply chain challenges. And it was just out there to sort of build, build networks and help people. And that's sort of where I spent the, the better part of the earlier part of my career. But increasingly, I found the problems that we were solving for these clients were lining shareholder value, which is very important. But it was at the detriment I felt sometimes of people and, and equally of, of planet. And so over time, there was this disconnect between the great work that we were doing and the impact that was actually having on people and equally the impact that it was having on our increasingly vulnerable planet. Yeah. Well, so that was coming, that was really starting to come through in what you were looking for yeah. in your life's journey as well. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time in, you know, I was leading teams, leading the business in New South Wales. The business was growing expon exponentially year on year, more clients. We were considered a thought leader in our space. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of work to be done and, you know, eventually the business grew and, and, and it was sold to a global outsourcing company and that came with, with that sale became, you know, more opportunity to work in larger teams and solve bigger problems and travel the world and, and uh, all very exciting stuff. But I, it always came down to was the work that I was doing contributing to create a better place for people and a better place for, for those that are experiencing hardship was coming, yeah, very, very prominent for you. So when you were going through that transition yourself, because how long were you with the consulting company for? Just over 15 years. That's a pretty long time. Yeah. So a significant part of your career has been spent there. Yeah. What were some of the questions that you were really starting to ask yourself about your values yeah. and what the direction you wanted to go in life? I think as a leader, you're always trying to solve other people's problems and not necessarily thinking a lot about yourself. So I didn't really spend a lot of time in the early part of my career getting clear on my own personal values. And, and it's something that I um, wanted to do more of in the latter part. And I remember reading a book by John DiMartini called The Inspired Destiny, um, which, which was a, essentially as a book, but a tool to help you to understand your own personal values. And, and that was one of the books that I read that sort of helped me to crystallize what my own values were. And for the first time, start to think about how what's important to me could help others rather than what's important to others and how it could help them. And, and that's really what I was thinking about and starting to think more about. And probably in, off the back of that, starting to do more, but more in a volunteering capacity. So I'd start to think about, you know, one of, one of the things that came to, to the foray was, was the importance of contribution and giving, giving to others and, and adding value into others. And so I started to think about how could I help other charities? How could I help uh, other people that could benefit? And whilst I was working professionally, you know, I was making time to do the things that were actually more closely aligned to my values. Yeah. And filling your heart. I think that's a, a big thing that we don't all do all the time because we are, you know, just going with the flow of life, but doing things that really do fill your heart. And it's, it's a personal accomplishment, but it absolutely brings out the best in you to then continue being able to give out the best to others. I couldn't agree more with you. Yeah, fantastic. So you're out there, you're consulting, you're starting to realize that, you know what, I need to make a larger contribution to this world. 
Where was the first area that you kind of looked at from that volunteering space? So I had young kids at the time and I wanted to set a good example for them. So I thought, well, what could be something that I could do that could actually demonstrate to them the importance of contribution? And so leading from the front, I just started volunteering. I found, I found a charity that resonated closely with me, which was around helping kids to give back. The charity is called Kids Giving Back, and it creates meaningful volunteering opportunities for children. And it's quite hard to find opportunities for kids to do good. And I was looking to help my kids do good. And I started mentoring this charity leader. And I didn't know what I had to add in terms of value, but I offered myself and my skills and my time and my talent to, to, to Carol, the leader there, and just learned more about the sector at the same time as the importance of giving back. And what I wanted to instill in my own kids was in their own DNA of contribution of giving. And I thought by just taking some leadership and doing it myself and show, showing them and then involving them would be the best place to start. I absolutely love that. I think in, you know, I reflect on my own family in that scenario and it is, it's actually quite tricky to find the right opportunities that you can take your children to and they need to see it. They need to play a part in something, even if they don't appreciate it, which they probably won't at the time. Yeah. But down the track, absolutely will. It's, I think, a critical part of yeah. their upbringing. And I think that, 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 that opportunity that I provided to them has, give, has definitely left an imprint. And I can see that the way that they behave, they're a little bit older now, but they think about other people and they acknowledge that what they have in the fortunate situations that they are in, they recognize that not everyone is as fortunate and they are thinking about others that are less fortunate all the time, which I think is really important. Yeah, no, it is. It's extremely important. And that's wonderful. So you're there for quite a few years as well, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Helping out, volunteering. Yes, yeah, so I volunteered for a number of years. I was invited to join their board and it was just filling my cup and my cup was overflowing. And I realized that there was this, this disconnect between what I was doing every day compared to what I wanted to be doing more of, which was, which was helping more people and seeing the benefit of the contribution that I could have on those that were less fortunate. And so I got to a point in, in my career where I was running the, the practice in New South Wales and involved in the global leadership team. And I just felt that there was this increasingly disconnect between my highest value around contribution and the problems that I could solve for and the problems that those that were uh, solving behind me. So it was just time for, time for a change. Time for a change. So how did you make that change? Was it something that you went, you know what, I'm going to actually stop and really take that time to reflect on what you're going to do next or was the right opportunity there waiting for you? So I, I literally just jumped off the cliff. I didn't have anything to go to, not in the literal sense, but I took... Sometimes it's the best way, straight uh, into it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I had to have belief mm. in myself and that if the right thing would present itself to me, if I gave myself the time to allow that to present itself. I didn't want to just leave what I was doing and start something new and not have the time to process what it was that I wanted to do. Cause I didn't know, I never ever envisaged myself as being a leader in a charity. I know I wanted to help charities. I wasn't sure how, but I didn't see myself as leading and, and solving for problems in the way in which I'm solving for them today. So I just took the time out. I was still very interested in helping kids. I had a real passion to teach kids to learn through play. And I was exploring ways in which to use my skills to, to unlock this opportunity to create, uh, help kids to actually learn, but learn differently. And so I had this, this, my kids were at that age where I was trying to teach them 
and not necessarily teach them classroom skills, but 21st century skills and things sort of just shifted into a different problem set as I started to sort of go through my own discovery and realized how much disadvantage there was and, and how fragile our planet was. And the shift from teaching kids to learn through play into thinking about general disadvantage and our planet sort of came, came to me. That was the path forward. That was the path forward. Yeah, right. Yeah, I didn't have, there was no, I'm leaving and I have this in mind and I know these people and I know this organization and I didn't know of the organization and I really didn't know. I, I wanted to just give myself after having such a long, I was quite fatigued and I just wanted to have some time to just decompress and allow, allow myself the time to find something meaningful. That's a really important lesson. Like the, the whole being able to stop, a lot of us think we have to keep going. You've got to go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing very quickly. But as you progress through life and you're wearing multiple hats from being a parent to the career to volunteering there's endless things happening, that importance to just stop and really reflect internally is a game changer for the personal growth, which then becomes professional growth down the track as well. Yeah. I think we run at a hundred miles an hour when we're busy and sometimes we're too busy being busy that you're not actually working on the things that are having the greatest impact. And you could probably find that you could have a much greater impact by being more focused uh, on fewer things and doing them really well. And I think when you're so busy and you're in this rut of selling and onboarding and delivering and then selling and onboarding and delivering and you constantly, you get this flywheel spinning, you're not actually caring enough about yourself, your health, your, your relationships with your family and your friends. And you, those have to be front and center and, and work needs to integrate, not, not the other way around. And I think the time off gave me the opportunity to really assess where did I want to spend more of my time? Who did I want to spend more of my time with? And what did I want to be doing? Yeah, it's almost building your own little personal strategy coming yeah. from the consulting world and, yeah. <laughs> and exactly. building that out. Exactly. So then your next part of that was Thread Together did come along your path. Yeah. How did that happen? I was at a, an offsite with a friend and we were just in a, we were just learning together at an offsite for a couple of days and talking about what I wanted to do and just, and, and through a relationship that he had with the founders of Thread Together, he was aware that they were looking for a leader and said, this is something that I should consider or would I consider? And they were at the time recruiting for a new leader. And I suppose the rest is history. I, I reached out and said, yeah, I'm interested to know more. And went through a process. They ran a process to select a leader. And, and here we are, you know, four and a half, nearly five years later. Yeah. Wonderful. So you yeah. met Andy and what was their vision back then yeah. when you were just meeting them? So when I, when I, so, so the organization is just over 10 years now. I've been in the role for five years and I think it was still finding itself for the first five years. And it was that the vision was to help people and to keep clothing in use. And I found I was drawn into the social benefit of clothing people and I wanted to learn more and I wanted to understand more and I didn't have as strong an appreciation for the, the extent of disadvantage in community. So uh, I was just drawn into the thing that excited me most was the complexity of the problems that the organization was trying to solve and the opportunity that I could see to actually amplify its impact. It solves two very, very complex problems, which we'll go into. And I think neither of those problems are going away. 
and it's the, the amount of vulnerability that exists in community and the impact that fashion has on our planet. And I thought these are meaningful goals. These are meaningful problems to solve for that have a tangible impact. And, and that's, that's what I wanted to get my teeth stuck into. So it really was a beginning of a whole new chapter within your journey yep. of starting, really starting to go, okay, that, that purpose-led leadership was going to be able to come into play from yep. while bringing in your background of all the consulting work, which sounds like, I mean, there's, there's huge problems to solve yeah. in what you've just mentioned. And, uh, yeah, correct. And as, as a consultant, you're very sort of data-driven, you're fact-based, you hypothesis first, answer, you, you, you're, you're analytical. So you're bringing a whole bunch of skills into, into problem solving. You, and, and I didn't know how I could solve for these problems, but I believed that I had the skills to use my foundational skills and my technical skills to really try and tackle these problems at scale. So for our listeners, because hopefully a lot do know Thread Together now, it's definitely become a prominent name out there, especially in the retail industry. It is an absolute force for good. Can you give a, a really good overview as to what is Thread Together? Not everyone has a strong enough appreciation that every garment of clothing that's manufactured doesn't get sold. And about a third of clothing sells at its full price, a third of clothing sells at a discount, and sadly, a third of clothing remains unsold. There's a number of reasons why clothing gets overproduced or doesn't get sold, but we exist to solve for that particular problem, the amount of new clothing that would otherwise be destined for landfill. The second reason why we exist is in Australia, one in eight adults and one in six children are living without access to food security housing, and what we talk about is the forgotten basic human right, which is clothing. And so we exist to solve for two complex problems, the vulnerability in community around access to clothing, essential clothing, and the devastation that the fashion industry has on uh, the planet as a result of overproduction. And our organization is quite simple. The model is quite simple. We take from those that have got too much clothing at a point in time. And we collect clothing from all around the country. We work with nearly 2,000 retailers today. And we bring that clothing back into our center. And our whole model is powered or predicated on, on collaboration to amplify impact. And through working with partners and volunteers and those in our ecosystem, we can help to get clothing to people in need and restore some dignity to those that are going through difficult times by giving them access to new clothing. Yeah, they said they're two significant problems. And for someone that, like, I've had two decades within retail, just even sit, I'm visualizing right now all those back rooms <laughs> that are sitting there with the amount of excess, especially out at the outlet stores. It has been a huge concern over the last few yeah. decades within the retail landscape. But connecting those two dots of that takes a visionary, that, that, so a pure vision to go how you can move what is one problem in one industry to solve for the greater good for yeah. community. Can we really dive into how that actually so, came together? Yeah. So our founder, beautiful woman, her name is Andy Hallis, was one of the founding family members of the Sea Folly business. They had some beautiful towels that had a slight color run and she couldn't bring herself to taking those towels and putting them into landfill. And she wanted to find a valuable use for them. She understood that putting them into landfill would be detrimental. So she took it to a local charity, the local asylum seeker center in Newtown, 
and offered the towels to the charity on arrival with no expectation just to say, could you benefit from using these towels? At the time that it was, she was there, she saw in the corner of her eye a woman and children, children of similar age to herself, rummaging through bags, plastic bags of secondhand clothing and boxes of secondhand clothing. And one of the girls, the daughter of this mother, had tears in her eyes because she couldn't find something that fitted her. And she could just see her knowing the devastation that this young girl looking to sort of just have some, some clothes that fitted her and having to sort of rummage through bags of secondhand clothing and just thought that's not fair and with her knowledge of how much excess was in circulation. And so what started with one charity and one, one, one individual family, Andy picked up the phone and said, Hey, to someone in her network, could, could we just get some clothes and drop them at the center? And that's how things started. One family, one charity, one fashion brand. It is just about doing the right thing with product at its end of life if it had no purpose for sale. No one was talking about circular fashion then, and no one was talking about sustainability back then. It was just the right thing to do. And what started with an environmental intent to keep that, those towels out of landfill was solving a social benefit. So Andy says she almost stumbled across the problem and the solution at the same time, but didn't really know how to scale it and actually solve for it. And had done some great work before I started, but also recognized that the problem was growing larger and needed to bring into, into this organization some of the skills to help to bring it to, to solve at scale. Because it it's operating like a full-run business. Like this is like a, a retail store to some degree. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's important not to sort of call yourself a charity and act like a charity. I think you, you can have a status, whether you're a listed company or an unlisted company or, uh, or a registered charity or a not-for-profit. I think your, your behaviors as an organization and the leadership that you bring into that organization shouldn't be any different. You shouldn't perform any differently. You shouldn't have any different, you shouldn't consider yourself of any lower standard or higher standard because you're one or the other. And that's what I think I've brought into this organization and hopefully to set an example for the sector the importance of bringing good skills and good people and good strategy and good discipline and good governance into, into a sector that probably doesn't have enough of that. And, and by being able to do that, I've been able to demonstrate that you can solve for problems at scale and do so without actually draining the sector from, from a resourcing perspective or a funding perspective. I love that. That is, that is brilliant. And I think that to be able to see even the growth over the last four or five years has, it, well, yeah, it is a game changer to yeah. what's actually happening out there in the industry and to the community. Yeah, I'm very proud of where things are at. Did I think they would be where they are today, if you asked me, four and a half years ago? I'm not sure I would say that. Some of it's been a little bit of luck. I think luck is luck, but sadly the luck related to natural disasters, which raised the profile. Luck having found a partnership with Afterpay is a good example of having to raise the profile of the organization. When I started, we were working with about 25 charities and about a similar number of fashion brands in a much smaller center. I, I think it's fair to say we didn't have any business processes or systems or a clear strategy. We didn't have a team. That was myself and one other. And my predecessor just gave me the pin to, to enter the, the, the offices. There wasn't a lot to hand over. And, and I saw that just as a great opportunity to just get my teeth stuck into something. I didn't come from fashion. I'm not very fashionable either. <laughs> so I, but 
But I love solving relevant problems and I love getting my teeth stuck into ways in which things could be done at scale and, and, and how to do things as resourceful as possible through partnering and through collaborating and through working together to solve problems, not trying to do, thing, do things alone. So what was one of the, the first initiatives when you started in your new role as CEO of Thread Together? Where did you want to leave your footprint? Like where, where did you want to start? Because there's a lot that's happened in this four years and mm. you say luck, but luck is also through great relationships, mm. which you have done a very good job in building. But yeah, where did you start? First thing I did was draw the process maps. To <laughs> the consulting side. Coming right straight out. Put the consulting hat back on. I'm like, okay, what is happening here? Like how does the product move into the center? How do we get the product ready to give to people? There's a lot of complexity in the work that we do. It might sound simple on the top to take a lot of product from those that don't need it and give it to those that do, but there's a lot of complexity that underpins that. So it really just started by best understanding what are the enable, what is the process, what should the process look like, how to provide, how to never lose sight of heart, and, and that's really important from my perspective. This is not about coming in and applying a business mindset into a charity. It's about a highly empathetic understanding of the importance of clothing and what clothing means to people and how to actually use the skills without ever losing, losing sight of the purpose and the heart. And so I started just with what I knew. Let's document the processes. Level, level zero process map, clothing in, clothing arrive, clothing out, and then what's the next level down? And really just started to then unpack, okay, what are the uh, impediments to scale to bring clothing in? How do you manage product gaps? How do you manage inventory? What are the things that you need to enable it to be more efficient and effective? And I always had that efficiency and effectiveness driver in me because the sector is very resource constrained. It's financially constrained. Uh, and you have to be think smarter uh, to actually be able to do things more effectively. So I started with just no very low base uh, and just had to sort of build on who are the partners that can help us and how can we leverage their networks? Um, who are those that are able to provide the things that are needed to deliver, help us to deliver our service? And I distilled it. There's four things that this organization needs to be successful very, very early on. And it made it easy to articulate those four things to people when you're meeting with them. So if I was having a conversation with Afterpay, these are the four things. If I was having a conversation with Shopify, these are the four things. So it didn't matter who it was. And those four things are distilled into the four T's. And it made it easy for everyone to remember as well. We need time to deliver this service. So it's leveraging time from people who are available to volunteer. We're powered by volunteers in a typical year. We work with five to 6,000 volunteers at, at this center. We need talent. So we, we need the capacity and the capability to deliver this service. And you've got to be clear on what, what you need, but that's what we need as a small team. When there's only two of you, you can't do everything. We need network leverage. And I call that ties or introductions. How can we work with others that can help us to solve these problems? And the last thing we need a little bit of, and not a lot, is financial support or treasure. And so when, we clear, when you clear from a leadership perspective, when you're clear about what you need, it makes it a lot easier to ask for it. When you're not quite clear what you need, you're not quite sure what people have to offer you. So I think if you're very clear, these are our goals, these are our strategies, this is where we've got capacity or capability gaps, how can we benefit from a partnership or a discussion? Those four pillars, it does, it wraps it all up, doesn't it? Like it's, it's very clear and... 
it also showcases how so many different people can help in very different ways yeah. as well. And I know that the door's always open here for everyone to to be able to play a part in that space. When you started reaching out to retailers to be able to talk this through and what was their feedback initially? I feel that if you're solving relevant problems, the sell isn't that hard. It's being able to articulate the problem that you're solving for in, in their language. Almost all retailers have a problem of not being able to sell everything that they produce. And they're looking for an ethical pathway. Most, I'd like to say all, but most are looking for an ethical pathway to move that product so that they can bring next season's product into the into, into store. So it wasn't a very difficult sell. You just needed to articulate how it uh, fitted into their business problem. And at the moment when problems don't, Solutions don't present themselves for managing excess inventory. The alternative is to put it into landfill. No one wants to do that. No one chooses to do that if they could avoid doing that. But uh, that's the alternative. And so if you can present an alternative to landfill that's got a, that is the highest ethical response by keeping it in use and giving it to people, made it quite easy. It just meant getting in front of the right people who could help you. And how much is going into landfill? give or take in Australia? New clothing? Yeah, it's new un, clothing. It's, it's not recorded. One of the biggest, one of the big, our biggest challenges at the moment is visibility into the amount of excess because no one's obligated to report that. There's hundreds of thousands of tons of pre-loved clothing that go to landfill every single year. And we don't tackle post-consumer, not today. But the, in terms of pre-consumer, we work with nearly 2,000 retailers and about 60% of the volume is cutting across about the top 25 to, to 100 fashion brands. And we're working with almost all of those brands. So I'd say we're collecting millions of units of clothing a year and redistributing that out into the community. But there's no definitive amount or knowledge because no one's obligated to report. It's something that we're working on. It would be very interesting to know because I'm assuming it would still be quite high out yeah. there in the market as well, and not just for fashion, for all industries. Yeah, we're, we're actually talking to the EPA at the moment about a first use legislation. So there's no legislation in Australia around first use. So if you manufacture something and you dispose of it, you're, you're entitled to do that. If we can introduce a first use legislation, means that everything that gets manufactured needs to have a use would be a fantastic outcome because we've exhausted so much effort and resources to actually manufacture something, to not keep it in, to not give it a use and then keep it in use is detrimental to the planet. Very interesting. Yeah, so much to explore in that space. And so you started reaching out to retailers. You had a very clear proposition that you could put on the table, but also very clear on what you could solve for them yeah. with this excess stocks, which, as I said, putting my retailer hat on is extreme like the even from the backroom space to the warehousing space to health and safety from the amount of boxes that are actually you know put up on high shelves etc and they're not actually brought out so to be able to say listen we we want to be able to help and, and take this for a greater cause I mean a breath of fresh air to so many retailers hearing this yeah and we've intentionally made it easy um, so in terms of thinking about scale, you have to remove the friction 
that is associated. If we said to a brand, we'd love to take your product, but you need to give it to us in this way and it need, you need to itemize exactly what you're providing to us, it would never come to us. And so we've intentionally said to them, you'd make it available to us, we'll come and collect it. So we're reducing the burden on them having to freight it to us, we're reducing them having to warehouse it and, and dispose of it and incur disposal costs. So it was a no-brainer for a brand to contribute because we're making it so easy for them to do that. Now, some would argue if you're making it too easy for them, they'll continue to overproduce. And I don't think any brand intentionally wants to overproduce and not sell. It's not in their interest to do so. So if you could make it easy for them to do that and take on some of that burden ourselves and then break down those problems and solve for them ourselves. So when we started in a very small warehouse, we ran out of space quickly because so many people wanted to give us clothing and we didn't have the space to receive it all. So in the early days, space was a problem first problem to solve. Then it was logistics. Okay, well, how do we bring the product in to reduce the friction? So solving now for space, then we've got to solve for logistics. Now we've got all this product and we can get it here. And we, we now, and we've got the space allocated. Who's going to help us to solve this? So at the height of COVID, we had no volunteers. It's like, how do you solve for volunteers or workforce capacity? Thinking through the problem, where are these people coming from? How can we inspire employees when they do return to work to become better individuals and how do we help those in the ecosystem become part of the solution and not just a contributor of stocks. Fashion brands are here regularly, corporate citizens are here regularly, all helping us to solve the problem. So we solve for space, logistics and people. And then we said, okay, well, how do we solve for inventory management now? So all of these built, these problems, once you solve for one, you now solve for the other. So you've got all this clothing coming to you. But now you've got not enough of what you need and too much of what you don't need. So you've now got another problem. So the problems just continue to present themselves. It's and a they, real business. It, like yeah. hand on heart, it's a operational logistic business that, yeah, it's inventory yeah. in, inventory out. And it, it's all got to flow yeah. the exact same way. The difference is we're supply led, which means we can't control what's coming to us in the context of product. We seasonally lag, which is another problem. So in the middle of summer, you're receiving winter clothing. And we are, we're just challenged from a resourcing perspective. We don't have any capital. We don't have an income stream. So you really are like a startup. You, we operate like with a startup mindset. We work in an agile way. And I think the thing that I would say to those that are listening is really get clarity on your strategy. And when you're very clear on what it is that you're trying to achieve, it becomes a lot easier to actually achieve those goals. If you haven't got a strategy, you're kind of moving in different directions. So at Thread Together, we're very, very clear on the four goals that we're trying to achieve, the strategies that underpin that, our way of working as a very small team, partnering and collaborating with others makes that possible. That is great advice uh, for everyone, really. And to, to have that level of clarity, what does shine through that I've seen from here is a very clear vision and mission as well. And, you know, everyone that you mentioned thread together, they know exactly what your purpose is and what you're trying to achieve and what you have achieved mm. so far as well. I always say that our vision is not to exist <laughs> as, a, as a starting point. Like I would prefer that there wasn't as much excess clothing in circulation and that we actually were more considered in our consumption than we were more considered in our, in our planning and didn't overproduce. And equally, I'd be even more satisfied if the people that we're supporting didn't need our help that they had the means to support themselves. So our vision is a society that is actually considered around our planetary impact, 
but equally that we're uplifting those that are vulnerable and not allowing them to fall through the cracks and not allowing them to stay in those scenarios. So if we could solve for those, we wouldn't exist. And that's a good thing for us. We don't have to exist. We're not set out to be everywhere and help everyone. We actually prefer that we didn't have to do that. That's the, that's the real vision. But we know that when I started, I thought we're not going to have enough new clothes to give to people. And th there's an infinite amount of unsold inventory, sadly. And equally, there's an infinite amount of people who are in need of clothing. And, uh, and we're starting small. We're solving for the problems at scale locally. And I think if we can act, if we can think globally and act locally and solve locally, I'm confident that we could replicate this model into other geographies. Well, it is a fantastic business model. You've done an incredible job in building the infrastructure and foundation so that it can scale at a global level yeah. as well. So on the community side, because we're talking a little bit about the retailers, and I'll come back to the numbers after we, we go through community. From a community, how do you help? Like, where is Thread Together getting involved, or how can people reach out to Thread Together to be able to get that new set of clothes? Yeah, so to scale our operation, we work with other registered charities and welfare agencies around the country. Around 3,000 retailers, sorry, about 3,000 registered charities use the service on a daily basis, and they can request clothing from Thread Together in one of four ways. So the model is to work alongside those that know vulnerability in the community better than us. So that's the partnering piece. And they are introducing their clients into our service. So we work with women and children escaping family and domestic violence. We work with the long-term unemployed. We work with new arrivals into our country seeking refuge. We're working with the, we're working with people that are experiencing hardship through mental health. There's so many use cases of people that are in need of clothing. You may have lost your home through a flood or a fire. There's so many use cases, but those agencies are introducing us to those people. And then we're helping them in one of four innovative ways to help to reach as many people as possible. So we're a national organization. We clothe around two and a half thousand people a week through four channels. The first is online. So we have an online store like any other retailer. The difference is we don't sell clothing. Caseworkers sit alongside people in need and request clothing, and those requests for clothing, or as a retailer would call it an order, um, comes through. And um, we we have a platform that's powered by by Shopify, same way, same experience, and then we fulfill those orders in in the same way that any other retailer. That's one of four ways. The second is through a fleet of vehicles that drive clothing into community. They have a walk-in wardrobe inside and a change room on the rear. And individuals have the opportunity to walk into that experience and choose clothing. And that's very, very empowering for someone who doesn't have anything. The third way is through an authentic shopping experience. We have our own bricks and mortar stores. And here we take fixtures and fittings that would otherwise be going to landfill. And we build new stores. And we put those into locations where there's the highest area of need, not because we want to have more stores. And then caseworkers refer their clients to use the service. And the client can come in and have an authentic shopping experience. They can browse, they can try on, they can choose clothing, and they can do that in their own time. And they feel this real empowered sense of, I've just come out of a detention center where I've been wearing, you know, clothing that was being given to me for the last 14 years. And here I am looking at myself in the mirror, having chosen clothing that, that actually is, is who I am. We see that all the time. We're helping someone present themselves at, in court or at a, at, a, at a funeral or a school formal. 
there's so many use cases to help people with clothing and that store experience is, is really empowering. And lastly, the fourth way is to give women and children escaping family and domestic violence clothing on arrival. That's probably one of the proudest ways in which I, I feel we're closing a gap for the immediacy of need of women and children in the circumstance that they find themselves in. And so there's on arrival, we build wardrobes into shelters and we merchandise those with beautiful uh, loungewear, sleepwear and underwear. And just to give those women and children on arrival just some normalcy. So those are the four ways today that we help people around the country. We have we have 10, 10 vehicles, we have 10 stores, we are in 100 shelters with those refugees, and we're receiving orders every single day. And sadly, that need continues to grow, and that's concerning for us. I think out of that, though, the ability that you're giving people significant dignity, there's no judgment. doesn't matter what where they've come from, what's actually happened. You're, everyone is human. Everyone is treated equal. And everyone is given that opportunity. It's about not judging. Uh, we don't judge fashion brands. We're a solution to a problem, whether you've got a lot of excess or not a lot of excess, or you've got, you're a high-end brand or somewhere in between or an ultra-fast fashion. We're a solution to a problem and we don't judge. In the same way that we're working with agencies to help people who are in need, we're not judging those people, whether they've done time, whether they have arrived into our country seeking refuge. We're just affording them the dignity that they're deserving. Sadly, we judge people based on what they're wearing. We have this cognitive bias to look at someone and put them into one of three or four different buckets within three to five seconds of seeing them based on what they're wearing. I talk about our clothing being like our second skin. Not only is it protecting us from the elements, but it's actually helping us to, to feel, feel good about ourselves. We're trying to create this opportunity for people who don't have the means to buy new underwear to know what it's like to put on new underwear. And there's this concept called enclosed cognition, which is about being empowered or feeling more powerful because you dressed appropriately. And um, we're just trying to give people access to give them that sense of dignity. It's a forgotten basic human right, clothing. And no one, we're just solving for the amount of excess that would otherwise go to landfill and giving it to people that could benefit from it. It's quite simple, despite the complexities involved. Uh, and it's, it is, it has a profound impact on individuals who just don't have access. And sadly, there's, that's one in eight adults. Uh, it's very scary statistics yeah. overall. And to see your 360 from this child that came to yeah. Australia and now yeah. being able to provide that to yeah. everyone as well in how like you felt as a child to then now being able to, to help other people find that confidence yeah, no, within I, the clothing. Right now we're helping kids with school shoes for term one of next, of next, or the first term of school, school year. And I know what it was like personally to arrive at school on my first day in a new country, not maybe in the same circumstances as others, but standing out. And I don't think any child who hasn't chosen to be in the circumstances that they find themselves in shouldn't, they should deserve to fit in until they're ready to stand out for themselves and, and make their mark on the world. It's important that they don't, there's no barrier or disadvantage. And I knew what that felt like. And I didn't think about that until I actually realized when an agency said to me, look, we've got these young students and they've just arrived and they don't have school shoes. Can we help? And we said, absolutely, we can help. And it is about helping people to, to feel good about themselves in clothes. 
I love it. It is just incredible work that you're all doing here and should all be so proud of like it's it's a legacy. It is a pure legacy that's going to continue living on in a generational shift as well. There's all these, you know, individuals that you're helping, how that's then going to set them up in life and then be able to be, you know, passed down through their generation. Yeah. We we only hope that the clothing is a stepping stone to help someone get a job or feel better about themselves and go to school or or, or present themselves for housing or present themselves to in a way that they have the opportunity to take that next step. We're not necessarily the solution to the problems that they may have, but if we can be an enabler to help them move in the right direction and a little bit faster, give them that little push, clothe them and give them a little push forward, give them a boost is, is I think the best thing that we could, we could do. And the other part of it, to be able to provide at that level, because it, it is once again, well thought out structure of how to be able to get clothing out to everyone across Australia. Behind the scenes of that, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, there, there is an extreme operations. There's a lot of logistics, there's picking and packing, there's all the other components of business with a very, very small team and infrastructure here. So you did speak about time and partnerships. How does that all come together so that people can understand what happens behind the scenes at Thread Together? Yeah. So, so we're a team of eight and that delivers the service nationally. Our team is very operationally focused. So we're always on the floor working with, with volunteers. We are funded through philanthropy today. We do not have an earned revenue model. It's something that we're working very hard on. What does that mean? We don't receive any government funding. And that's a little bit by choice as well. So we look at our own small team's time. And we go, how do we get the greatest leverage of our, our time? What's the greatest return on investment of our time? Do we have teams of people responding to grant applications and, and sort of spraying and praying and hoping we're going to get some funding that way? We run, No, we don't do that. We don't have the resources to do that. We don't run fundraising events, which is what most other charities do, because we don't have the resource allocated and the cost associated with doing that. So a lot of our thinking around funding this model is around the return on investment of our time. And who do we need in our ecosystem to help us to actually make what we do possible? So I love the Jerry Maguire concept of, of having fewer partners or fewer clients and working with them in a more meaningful way. I think you can form really strong partnerships and build and form really strong partnerships if, you, if you're very clear on the mutual benefit that you can add, add to each other. It's not just about, oh, we're a charity, come and help us. We need time, we're a charity, we need talent. I want to take a moment to introduce you to Naturally Gloom-Free, where lifestyle meets quality. Naturally Gloom-Free is a boutique bakery committed to crafting exceptional gloom-free products that are produced with high-quality natural ingredients and free from all additives and preservatives. When you are seeking to transform your menu or source a premium gloom-free product, Naturally Gloom-Free invites you to connect with them via their website, naturallygloomfree.com.au. To effectively serve the community, there must be a well-coordinated set of operations ensuring the successful delivery of individual items. Could you share the insights on how all of your operational processes come together to really ensure you can facilitate the ability to get all these packages out to the community? So we run what's called a hub at a spoke model. 
apologies for the supply chain chat <laughs> or, or lingo. What that means is we have a central warehouse, which is based in Sydney, not far from the airport, where product comes in from all around the country. So we go and collect that product, working with our logistics partner, we bring it back into the center. We're powered by volunteers. I mentioned earlier that we work with thousands of volunteers every year. They're helping us to open up those boxes and determine what's inside them, which is one of the biggest impediments to scale at the moment because retailers can't tell us what they're giving to us at the category level and at the size level and the number of units. So volunteers are in our center. There's four types of volunteers that help us every single day. Great corporate citizens, fashion brands and retailers, community members, and school students. They're in our center, two shifts a day, six and a half days a week, sorting clothing to get it ready to give to people. It's looking at the garment, sizing it. That's a men's jeans, waist size 32, men's jeans, waist size 34, men's chinos, women's full brief underwear, size 6, women's full brief underwear, size 8, bra size 12B. Every single item needs to be categorized and sized and then put away. And then we provide an RFID tag so we can actually track what we have on hand. So a lot of investment in, in efficiency and effectiveness levers have helped us to actually identify what we have on hand so we can help more people. So once the product has got an RFID tag on it, we can tell what we have on hand, what we've got too much of, what we don't have enough of. Once everything's put away, we can then replenish into our center to do what we call order fulfillment. So volunteers will take the picking list that's come from a registered charity. So the caseworker sat next to someone and built out a request for clothing. For someone who's in need, that could be 25 to 40 units of clothing with a note at the bottom that provides us an understanding of the individual who's in need and their preferences. So if it's someone who's coming out of jail, the caseworker will tell us, please don't provide any green clothing because that triggers being back in jail. Some caseworkers will tell us a little bit about their client's style and their preferences because what you're ordering online is a category and a size. So a men's pair of jeans, waist size 32. We don't know whether those are going to be black or blue, or whether the boots are, are coming from one brand or another. And so we're having to just categorize it at a category and a size level and get some of that information. And then volunteers are coming, they're pushing trolleys around our center, and they're basically fulfilling that request. And they are writing a beautiful note to the, to the recipient. If we haven't got everything, because we do have situations where we don't have everything that we need, or write them a little note, we might substitute a pair of chinos for a pair of jeans or a pair of trackies if we don't have exactly what's been requested of us. But we're wanting to make sure that what we have that's available is given to people. So those volunteers are walking around with their little shopping trolleys. They, they are adding to cart, preparing that order, sealing the carton, and then we provide the fulfillment or the logistics. So we generate the consignment notes and we push it out. And all of this is done through partnering and collaborating. We are oversubscribed and we never take this for granted with volunteers at the moment. We have a great volunteering experience. It runs for half a day. It helps us to get more clothing done. We have groups of 50 to 60 people that are here in the morning and the same in the afternoon, getting what we need to get done, done. And we create a great experience. We bring empathy into that experience so that people know that they're not just a cog in the wheel moving a product into a carton or out of a carton and into a, a requisition, but they're actually understanding more about, you know, overproduction and the impact that fashion has on the planet and the amount of vulnerability in community and their role to provide clothing to people in need. And that all happens here at our center in Sydney. We then have these spokes around the country, which are our clothing hubs and our vehicles and, 
and the uh, wardrobes that we put into women's refuges, which are the other ways that clothing is accessed. But all that clothing is requisitioned into this center. And through partnering and collaborating with amazing corporate citizens and fashion brands, we get clothing out into the community as quickly as possible. Yeah. And it's pretty significant, not just what you're doing there, because I mean, that's exceptional. It's what the impact that has on culture in organizations that are coming in, your, your key partners, whether they're the, the retailers or financial partners, you know, sponsors, everyone coming in, it is a true experience for them as well. It is a moment of reflection, but it's also the ability to drive culture in organizations as well and actually have leaders bring their teams out and spend quality time with them doing something that has an impact. Yeah, we know that we can return an employee back to the workforce more engaged than what they were before they came here. So after they've been here, they go back into the workforce a better person, a more empathetic employee. They understand better. You can't teach teach people how to be empathetic. You have to immerse them in an environment where they are exposed to vulnerability or understand, and then they can actually become a better person to address that. So People come here and we're told that they leave better listeners, they leave better people. It's a value back into an organization to to have their people here. And we know because of the feedback that we always receive, we have returning volunteers, a very, very high return rate. Most volunteers get one day a year, so we see them every every year. So we've seen multiple teams um, over the last few years because they were that single day a year that they're wanting to volunteer and they're choosing this organization because of the experience and because of the, the tactile benefit of clothing people and that experience. Yeah, and the the sort-offs that you do as yeah. well, they've become yeah. quite a big part so of the experience. <laughs> we've tried to gamify the experience. Like we've, we're just, again, we're thinking differently to most other charities when it comes to volunteering. We're trying to create different experiences. So a few different examples, if I can share with you, we, had, we, have, we have a sort-off. We have a box off where we're making boxes of competing teams against each other. There's a scoreboard and we have a DJ in the center that's playing, you know, tunes. We, we had, we're in a jukebox. We've had a coffee cart. We've had a gelato, a gelato cart. We've like, what we're trying to do is create experiences that people have a memorable moment, but they're contributing back into community at the same time. And that will then leave an imprint on them. We don't want them coming here and having a sugar hit. And then that, that sort of just dissipated. And we want them to have embedded in their DNA the importance of contributing, coming back here, coming back here with a friend. And what we're seeing with businesses now is they're coming here with their customers. They're coming here with their partners. They're coming here with their clients. So they're not just seeing it as a team-building experience. They're actually seeing it as an opportunity to engage, network, and build better relationships with their potential customers, clients, partners, uh, but at the same time helping us to get more work done. Yeah, it's right. so a win-win for everyone. It is a huge win-win for everyone. Yeah, amazing. And on the the whole partner side, can we, I don't want to dive into numbers, but let's talk about numbers because if we go back to the beginning part of the journey, there was 25 partners you had when you came on yeah. board. What are some of these numbers that stand here today that you've driven under your leadership? Yeah, so, so I don't want to take all the credit for it. We're a team. Completely. Uh, and we today we support just under 3,000 registered charities. We're clothing 2,500 people a week through that network. We have what's, so we're very, again, data-driven. We, we talk about the level of engagement, how engaged is a partner, an agency that's using the services. We look at how many agencies have used the service within the last 14 days, 30 days, 60, 90, 120. So we talk about engagement. 
because we know that if we can provide a great service to a, an agency who's helping someone in need, they'll continue to use the service for other people that they're helping. So our current engagement level is around 67%, which is very high for a number of agencies using the services in the last 60 days. So we wanted to make sure at least one request is placed in the last 60 days. If we don't manage that, we end up having too much clothes and not enough agencies distributing clothes too. Right now, it's the, it's the inverse. We've actually got more people in need of the service than there is the mix of the clothing that, that's required. We work with about 2,000 retailers. Now, that sounds like a big number. It is a big number. But in reality, a significant percentage of the volume is driven by the Pareto. 80% of that volume is coming from the top 20 to top 50 uh, fashion brands. But we treat every single brand with the same uh, level of respect. We, we, it doesn't matter whether they've got a large organization and a small contribution or a small contribution and a large organization. All of the clothing is treated equally as well, which is an important part for us. It doesn't matter whether it's a $1,000 gown or a $1,000 suit um, or a $100 suit. It's just a suit. It's, a, it's, a, it's made out of cloth. A lot of labor has gone into it and hard work to produce that armor. And we just want to make sure that the people that wear it feel good about what they're wearing. And so, again, it's that concept of not judging. And the outfit alive again, like yeah. it's you know from that back room back out and and giving it a purpose. And when I get onto the when I get onto the into the into the field, that's when you see the clothing coming to life. Like yeah, it's a great experience to volunteer, and we would open the volunteer. The volunteering is open to anyone who would like to join us. And if there's anyone on the on this uh, podcast that would love to have that experience to get in touch with us, but we the clothing comes to life when it's put onto people's backs, and that is. The the tactile shift from moving a garment into a box and into a location to putting it onto someone and seeing how people's posture changes and seeing how people's facial expressions change and how they feel. They get that extra spring in their step. It's only possible because they're feeling good about themselves and clothing is just one way in which to help that. So how many people have you clothed across Australia? We've closed nearly 700,000 people in the last 10 years, and that's, that's a very large number. It's a number that we're proud of, but we would, as I said, we would prefer that we didn't have to help as many people. There's about three and a half million people a year that are experiencing vulnerability. So in 10 years, we've helped that many. In a single year, we help around 125 to 130,000 people. Uh, in a typical week, if you want to know some of the numbers, we, we're all over the numbers here. We were, we, so we've, we've distributed into the community this year just close to 1.4 million units of clothing. So that brought in, requested, and we know exactly how many of those units have gone into which locations, which agencies. So very data-driven from, from that perspective. We know how many charities are using the service, for example. But every single one of those persons, whilst that sounds like a big number, every single one of those people, families, individuals, communities, are important to us and we want to make sure that what we are making available to them fits them, meets their style and their set of circumstances and it just means um, working really hard to align being supply-led to help to shift to becoming more demand-driven. So how can people actually get involved and help? And you did mention, you know, that lower supply that, that's yeah. sitting there at the moment. If we're putting it out there and, and anyone's listening, which I hope they are, what can people do right now to help? Okay. The, the easiest, there's four things that people can do to help um, and make it really, really simple. If you've got a few hours of time on your hand, getting in touch with us through our website to register to volunteer. If you have volunteering days available in your team and you're a team leader and you're looking to create an empathetic experience, bring your team to volunteer. That's the easiest way in which you could help us if you've got time on your hands. 
if your skills can align to the problems that we're trying to tackle, we'd love to talk to people. So we need content creators, videographers, photographers, data analytics. We're trying a solution for different problems when the supply exceeds demand. And we haven't touched on that, but we're regenerating soil and cotton farms and we're looking for ways in which to work with people. So I can tell you a little bit more about that, but we don't have the skills being a small team. We either don't have the capacity or the capability. So if you've got a bit of time on your hands or a bit of skills up your sleeve, we want to hear from you. I think the third area that I would ask people to consider if they're wanting to get involved is to leverage their own network. Our networks are most valuable to us, but we never unlock the power of them. If you're a good leader and you've got a good network, whether that's through LinkedIn, how do you unlock that to help more people? Stop and think about who in my network can I open up to help more, so that we can help more people in need. So we need more time. So if you've got a network of people that you want to introduce us to that can help us to volunteer, we would love to hear from them. We need to solve problems that need talent. So leveraging your network can introduce us. You may know charities in your network that are not using our service. If you can introduce them to us, we can clothe more people. You may know fashion brands. The biggest challenge at the moment is the demand is so great that we need more of the right mix of product. Can you introduce us to brands that have got product? And lastly, we need a few dollars, not a lot, and you'll never see us asking people for money, but we need money. So if you've got a few dollars up your sleeve, all it takes is $5 to make a donation of $5 helps us to clothe a person in need. Some people make a donation once a week, once a month, once a year. Small little amounts can add up to make a significant difference to our organization. So those are the four areas that people can really help us to help more people and protect our family. So there's plenty of ways that everyone can completely get involved. And one thing on that you mentioned around skills on innovation, I know that you know sustainability is a big part of your ethics as well and what you're doing in trying to, to repurpose all of this fabulous clothing and getting it back out there. The other part is that the landfill's still happening to a certain degree and you have actually played a part in trying to innovate to how to turn some of that landfill into the wardrobes that you're using for domestic violence victims as well. So sometimes we have a situation where we're receiving too much of what we don't need, meaning that there's not enough demand in our network to absorb some of the supply. And there's particular product categories where we have more of that product. Men's ties. Not many men wear tie, and I see them volunteering. I don't think I've seen a volunteer turn up in a tie, but I've also asked the question. So there's a lot of men's ties in circulation that are, that are overproduced and we end up having more than what we need for. So depending on the category and the time of the year, we sometimes have too much. And so we have to find ways in which to work with that product. So there's different things that we're doing. We're looking to, the first principle is keep it in use for as long as possible. Reuse it, redistribute it, consider renting it out, consider reselling it. Once those are all exhausted, you're moving down into sort of upcycling, repurposing. And we did an amazing activation with Afterpay during Australian Fashion Week uh, this year, where we actually gave designers the opportunity to redesign men's clothing into women's clothing and did, did the closing runway to showcase what you can do with the garment if it doesn't have a means in its current form. But what we're really excited about doing is starting to do more what we call different types of recycling where you've exhausted all of the reuse. And we take, we're doing mechanical recycling now, which is transforming the garment in its current form into a new form. What does that mean? It's taking the garment and decommissioning it, bringing it uh, and mechanically recycling it. And so the, 
the shelving that we're putting into our refuges with um, our wardrobe service is moving from being made out of a, a, a timber into a recycled uh, a shelf out of fibers. Uh, and so it's something that we're working closely on with partners to make that possible. Again, the importance of partnering to make that happen is... is Resources, innovation. So yeah. well, hopefully you can get some great skill as we go into 2024 of people wanting to really dive into that space and explore it with you. Yeah. I am going to ask you to to kind of go back and just recap as one of my final questions that, you know, your leadership at Thread Together has been very impactful. You really have said, you know, steered the organization towards that higher purpose. I know it's not just a job to you. It's a lot more in that regards. And you're very much a passion-led leader. Let's recap on your values that are true to you, that you use every day to influence your team, the partners and community around you? So my highest, con- my highest value is contribution. I touched on that a little, a little bit earlier, but the things that come to mind for me are things like being compassionate, being courageous, having humility, having, having respect and, and innovation. So those sort of, those themes around helping people, but doing it in, a, in an innovative way, respecting people, showing humility, is really we're trying to build a culture here where people are in flow, where people are actually delivering on their highest purpose in this organization. So we're trying to create, I'm trying to sort of rub my value set off onto my team, but I'm also hoping that they, their value set rubs off on, on everyone else, including including some of our volunteers. I always talk about this will and skill matrix, and we're trying to attract people that are high will and high skill. And, and we're trying to create a culture where people don't just bring will, but they actually bring skill to help us to scale. And so we feel by rubbing off some of our own values on each other, and we're all different. We all come from different. We have people in our team with lived experience. We're all bringing different fabrics, and we're stitching them or threading them together. And by doing so, we're creating this, this culture, this unique culture that's helping more people at the same time. Well, Anthony, my final question for you is what would be some of the words of wisdom that you can pass on to our next generation of leaders or founders coming through the most invaluable lessons that you've gained along the way? Is there anything you'd like to share? I think, like I read a lot. And one of the the books that I read a little while back was by Robin Sharma. It's called A Leader Without a Title. And the whole theme through that book is you don't need to have a title to lead. You just need to be courageous and you need to step into and, and be present. And I think the thing that I would say to those that are listening on this call that are aspiring to be better leaders or, or aspiring to be a leader, you don't need the title. You don't need letters next to your name or behind your name or academic transcripts. To be a good leader, you just need to show up and you need to be authentic and you need to be able to connect. And for me, that that theme of not needing to be the leader with a title to lead, everyone in our organization can lead and I encourage them to lead. And just because they don't have a certain title behind their name doesn't mean that they don't have a role to play to lead. That is great words of wisdom. Well, Anthony, thank you for sharing your inspiring journey and the impactful work of Thread Together on the Leadership Odysseys podcast. Your commitment to purpose-driven leadership and positive change is truly commendable. 
As we conclude, we expressed our gratitude for your insights and we truly wish you continued success in making a lasting difference through Thread Together. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. And I'm wishing all of you and your listeners the very best and hope to see them as future leaders. Thank you for joining us on this incredible odyssey. Until next time, lead with courage, lead with heart, and keep exploring the remarkable world of leadership. Enjoyed the journey? Hit the subscribe button, rate us, and leave a review if our stories ignited your leadership spirit. Your feedback fuels our odyssey.